0: I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which deconstructs genre and narrative and finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places.
1: The river's a moving thing. It takes people's troubles and worries away. The moment it falls into the river, it disappears. For them, it disappears. They don't think about the tides and the foreshore and the mudlarks.
0: If you've ever found yourself rifling through that all-dusty box in your attic, reminiscing over the artefacts inside, you'll know that stories are made up of more than words. Holding that favourite toy, taking in the sights and smells, can spark a childhood memory. And that moment in time, that story, paints itself like a picture in your mind, clear as day. Though they might be inanimate, every object has life locked within it. Just like us, they have a past. They may have lived through momentous occasions. They may have seen unbelievable things. We often assign human characteristics to objects, imagining a depth beyond what we know is reasonable. It's why we can so easily understand unlikely relationships with objects, like the one Tom Hanks has with his ball Wilson in Castaway. It's also why we connect so well with films like Toy Story. We care so much about the things that adorn our lives. We're desperate to believe there's more to them than meets the eye. And maybe, just maybe, we're right to believe that. Our guest today is Lara Makeland. She knows better than most that objects are storytellers. Her book, Mudlarking, paints a picture of the history of the River Thames through the items she's recovered from its shores. Chapter 1. The Great Time Capsule Walking along the creaky floorboards of an old abandoned house or traipsing through a graveyard on a dark, misty night, It's moments like these that convince us that places have their own souls, that they hold memories and maybe even the spirits of the people who once called them home. And for Lara, the ghosts of the past are only ever a low tide away. But the history of the river isn't the only thing that fascinates Lara. In her book, she delves into the intriguing history of her ancestors, who also happen to be river lovers.
1: The Makeclums are on my dad's side, and they're definitely land people because they're all farmers. For you know, incredibly boring, it goes back forever and ever and ever. Um, but it's my mum's side that were river people and have always lived near rivers. And uh, my, my dad's side was the uh, was the miscreant who was held on the prison hulk that I discovered that my mother thought was fantastic because she. Doesn't think a great deal of my dad's side of the family.
0: <laughs> you dived quite deep into the archives, didn't you, to dig up, to dig up all, the, all the family paths. Were you surprised by what you discovered?
1: I was, yes. Well, I mean, I mean the prison hulks are fascinating places. Uh, I started reading about them and I hadn't realised that they were on the river <clears throat> fairly central, you know, in Woolwich was where they held them because back then Woolwich was just marshes. So if anyone escaped, there was nowhere for them to go. And so they had these prison hulks at Woolwich and and I was reading about them, and I thought, I wonder if I've got any relatives the, the records that they kept were so precise, incredible, down to the last freckle on their faces and the height and you know whether they had a low brow and a cunning look, you know, and I thought, wouldn't it be great if I was actually related? you know I could read about someone from the past who was related to me and find out all this information about them, and I've got this, this strange name, make them, and I'm related to every for for better or worse. <laughs> to every Makelum in the world somehow. And so if I, I Google that name, I, you know, I know that at some point I'm, I've am i been related to them or I am related to them. Um, and there was Robert Makelum sitting on a prison hulk in, in 1840 in Woolwich, waiting to be transported to Tasmania for fraud. And he left his wife and two children up in Scotland and uh, he was sent off to Tasmania. And I managed to follow him, track him to Tasmania. He survived the journey, which was hellish in itself. He survived the prison hulks for a start. And uh, he, he served out his sentence in Tasmania and he married someone very young actually. And um, I lost track. But then through my Facebook page, people from Tasmania have got in touch with me and said, "Do did you know we found out all this information about him? And apparently he went bankrupt three more times. He ended up having to, in, back in prison, uh, for another six months for debts. And um, he really didn't make that much. I was very excited because I thought, oh, he served out his prison sentence. He got married. It was a happy ever after, you know, story. And no, he was just an air do well who ended up in prison again in Tasmania. Um, and um, he didn't have any children. There's no one, there's no megrams in Tasmania. There are some in Australia, I know that, but um, he didn't manage to leave anyone behind. But um, yeah, he was an heir do well. Hmm.
0: I think every family needs, needs a Robert Maker in it, doesn't
1: it? I <laughs> do. I think every family has got one, actually. <laughs> <laughs> the book is
0: extraordinary in the sense that it's not just a book about you know objects that you have discovered. It's a real history and geography lesson, and and it may it has made me think about the river differently. Um, in particular, the the fact that there's so much history buried under it, whether it be things that you yourself have found or other mudlarks, but also things like you know not a not a 6 month period goes by without another unexploded world war 2 bomb being discovered somewhere you know there's there's treasure under the <laughs> under the water isn't there well, how did you first get into being a mudlark
1: i always i was one of those children who was always looking down and picking things i was always in trouble for picking things up off the street you know but, but down it's dirty um and i was always looking down i was always sort of finding things looking for things and um I grew up in the countryside on a farm and, and I spent a lot of time. I like my own company. I love my own company. I like solitude. and um, But I also uh, had a draw to the city. I wanted to go there and, and enjoy the bright lights of, of London. And uh, I, after university, I found myself in London um, searching for somewhere quiet to go. I was, I was loving that busy side of it, but I needed to offset it with some peace and some solitude. And I went to the parks and Hampstead Heath and all the big parks. And we're very lucky in London. We've got some great parks and great open spaces. But... They just they just didn't give me what I wanted. They weren't wild enough. They weren't, there were too many people there. And I, one day I found myself down on the river and, and I realized that actually people didn't really go to the river. They go to it a lot more now. But back then, you know, Bankside wasn't developed and people didn't really go down to the river. And it was this kind of wild, I found this wild streak, this, this piece of nature running straight through the middle of the city that was just remarkable. And... Um, so I started going back and you can walk for miles along the river paths. And and for years, that's what I did. I, walked, I went down there just to get away from everyone, everybody and everything and 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 to walk for miles along the river. And um, one day I found myself at the top of this, this rickety set of river stairs and it was low tide. And it occurred to me that I could actually go down there because for some reason, people who live in London don't really think about going down onto the foreshore it's a kind of forbidden space Uh, you're not allowed to or it's too dangerous or or some people don't even realize it's tidal and you can Um, and I thought well there's absolutely nothing stopping me from going down I went down and I found a clay pipe stem and I'd found these before in the fields after they'd plowed them up and in the in the garden beds near the house where people who'd lived in the house had thrown out their rubbish so I knew exactly what it was and it it made sense that there was more down there and so I went back and every time I went back, I found something different and it gets addictive. And pretty soon I was going back regularly and that's really how it started. It was quite organic, my sort of trip, my my discovery of the foreshore.
0: Reading the book makes you think about the city differently and what the city used to be, what it is now. If you look at old photographs of the foreshore, it's completely different, as you say. And there are, sometimes you see a, a trailer from a film And they're on a boat, and you go, Oh my God, look at that. It looks so different now. It's so heavily built up. But some of the spots along the river, I have a particular fondness for the Whopping chapter on the basis that that's where I live. The pubs that you reference drip with history, and you can imagine pirates and bandits and smugglers and all kinds of ne'er do wells, you know, hunkering down over pints of ale. Um, But the river was, and still is to a certain extent, a, a heavy, a very busy working river that would take goods from all over the world you you get a real sense of that from reading the book when you step onto the foreshore is that something that you're conscious of as you're as you're looking for for objects that have uh, want to reveal themselves
1: very much so i mean london's only there because of the river um funnily enough during during lockdown it's probably been quieter than it's ever been i mean there was nothing on the river and the whole reason for london being there was for trade. So it's always been a really busy place. And a lot of the foreshore is when you're standing on it, you realize you're standing on man made objects, it's made up of human made detritus. So there's bricks and, and roof tiles and pottery and glass. And when you look carefully, it's all rubbish. And so once you're standing on it, yes, you do you hear the voices, it's a very busy place, it gives off this kind of essence of of history. Um, you know, if you could touch history, but laying your hand on the foreshore would be touching history. It really does speak to you. It's a, it's a magical place. It's hard to, it's, it is quite hard to explain without actually going there. But, uh, you know, I, I try my best in the book to, to describe it. And, and, and it's a very, especially at night, you feel the ghosts rising up out of the foreshore. It's not a lonely place at all because there's so much there. There's so much energy left in the foreshore from all these thousands of years of, of activity.
0: It has been fascinating to watch the river be so empty. You're absolutely right. Um, and as a tidal river and a working river, you know, there have been no, there's hardly been hardly any freight, hardly any, you know, riverboat taxis for the want of a better word, you know, the um, cruises that go up and down, no pleasure cruises, no nothing. And it's it's fascinating just to watch this river exist probably for the first time in centuries without anything being on it. It was quite a privilege actually to see it. Um, the, the t- I don't think people realise how tidal the river actually is. At sometimes the height of the river, the changes are extraordinary, aren't they? In terms of how um, how fast it moves or, or when the tide is out, I can. It's probably somewhere in the region of where where we are here. Um, anything between ten and twenty feet um, of difference when when the tide goes out. And when it does go out, it does reveal, as you say, this landscape that's not normally visible it's fascinating is do you um do you obsessively check tidal um timing so that you can rush down to the foreshore at any given moment
1: i i'm obsessed with tides um in fact there's a whole p- part of the book that's dedicated to tides because i had to learn about them i didn't know a great deal about them but once you start to read about them they're fascinating you know they change they change time every day there's there's usually two every 24 hours sometimes there's only one and um, they vary. Sometimes they, they go out, you've probably seen it, go way out um, if there's a good wind blowing it out to the east. So the weather changes as well. If it's raining upstream, it won't go out so far. If it hasn't been raining and it's blowing a gale and it's a very low spring equinox tide, they're the ones you're looking for because the tide will go out so far. It will reveal parts of the foreshore that haven't been searched for You know, sometimes months and months. Um, so they're the really special special tides, but you know people think about the river as the uh, that little wiggly bit that goes through central central london but it it starts at teddington in the west and by the time it ends out in the estuary it's a completely different place so the tides out in the estuary are much faster and much more frightening um, than the ones in town so it's you know it is a beast of many parts the, the river
0: and you describe it in the book as being, you know, I think it's something like almost, you know, one of the world's largest archaeological sites, um, which it sounds bizarre. I don't think people would have necessarily thought of a river being an archaeological site in that way. But it is, isn't it, from what you from, from what you discovered?
1: It is. I got into a little bit of trouble calling it an archaeological site, largest archaeological site. So I changed it to longest archaeological site. But yes, it is. I mean... There's nowhere else in the world like the Thames. People say to me, um, oh, do people mudlark on the Seine or the Danube or, or, you know, the Tiber? And um, I don't really mudlark anywhere else. There are places where people go, but there's nothing like the Thames. Because in central London, there's 2,000 years of intense human activity poured into the river there. And it's got the tides. The Seine isn't tidal. If it was tidal, you'd be finding the most incredible things. But you can't get down onto it. Um, so the beauty of the Thames is that it lets you down to, to, to search its, its foreshore.
0: Chapter two, part of a stranger's story. When we speak about relics from the past, of digging through that old dusty cardboard box of mementos, we're often only considering the happy memories attached to objects. But there are also many items in our lives that bring back painful memories, that have uncomfortable stories. And the chances are, these aren't the objects you're choosing to tuck away for safekeeping. No, for those objects, the sunken depths of the riverbed can be a far better home. So alongside the charm of mudlarking, trips to the river can also be unsettling.
1: When you find something on the foreshore, you're very aware that the moment you pick it up, you are interacting with its story or you become part of its story and you're the first person to touch it since the original owner dropped it or lost it and so the moment you touch it you're almost breaking that that stretch of time and you're you're then adding to its story and it becomes very personal and some things you pick up and they they just feel they just feel like they have a past and people go to the river and they still do they go to the river and always have to get rid of things they don 't want whether it's it's rubbish that they don't want or whether it's things that are very personal and painful to them, so we find mothers find a lot of love tokens, and uh, we find the bent sixpences from the seventeenth eighteenth century that were were fashionable then to give um, people and and rings and all sorts of things and we find modern things as well people are still going down to the river. And it can feel very intrusive sometimes on a low tide when you're, when you find maybe a, a torn up photograph or a love letter or, um, wedding rings and engagement rings. People throw their wedding rings, and engagement rings in because the river's a moving thing. It takes people's troubles and worries away. It, it, the moment it falls into the river, it disappears. For them, it disappears. They don't think about the tides and the foreshore and the mudlarks. And, um, There was one thing in particular that I did find, and it was a wedding ring. It was a gold wedding ring, really, really simple. And it had a date and initials in the inside. And I think it was the date and the initials that made it so personal and so painful that I thought, what am I going to do with it? I don't need this ring. I'm not going to wear it. I I couldn't sell it. It was put in there for a reason. Someone was very unhappy, and that's where it belongs. And I, I threw it back in. And, you know, and there were other things, I found a box of human ashes, that was a very uncomfortable thing to find, you know, it still had someone's name on it, they hadn't opened it up and scattered them, they'd thrown the whole thing in, um, and it had washed up. And so I was seized with this great moral dilemma, what do I do, you know, I can't leave this, this person lying in the rubbish here. But is it for me? It's not for me to open it up and scatter them. Maybe the person who threw it in hated that person so much they wanted them encased in plastic for all eternity. And so I eventually just dropped it back into the river and it, and it floated off under, under Tower Bridge. But it will have washed up somewhere else. But you find the most incredible things, messages and bottles. Um, sometimes they can be very, very personal as well. You know, people people seal their demons up inside these bottles and throw them into the river. So yeah, so it's full of very personal things, and, uh, and they do, you know, they do, even the very old things, do give off a very personal essence.
0: The message in a bottle statement is fascinating, because the traditional view that we have of those is that it's a, it's a joy when one of those washes up somewhere on the other side of the world, and you realize it's been in the ocean for... You know 250 years and some kid finds it and it becomes part of their history project um but typically those messages are at least this is the narrative i understand those messages are of hope or just wanting to see what happens to this particular bottle but people will literally pour their inner demons in in written form in onto a message that they put into the bottle and then almost are they trying to then banish those demons by letting the bottle go is that is that what you get? The sense they're doing?
1: I think so. I mean, I haven't most of the the messages, and you do find quite a lot out of out from the estuary. That's where they wash up with all the other bottles. Um, most of them are written by children, and they're just a bit of fun, you know. But I have found the odd odd couple that were really so personal, you know, people in very unhappy relationships. Um, someone had lost someone that they loved, and it, it was almost like it was very. It, it was almost like um, a therapy for them, I suppose, to write it down and cast it cast it off. Um, I got that, that, that sense. So, you know, th- those ones, I, I put them back in and left them, you know, left them for the river where they were meant to be.
0: Whenever there's a construction project in the city, there are typically teams of archeolog- archeologists who will follow the construction work round because they will always inevitably uncover, you know, some kind of either Roman burial mound or some kind of neolithic, whatever it might be. Is there a group that that does that for the river, do mudlarks have a responsibility to report what they find to a particular authority or is that fairly anonymous?
1: Well, you need a permit to mudlark and the permit comes from the Port of London Authority. Now the Port of London Authority, they administer all of the tidal Thames and they they basically own the foreshore. So whatever you find in the foreshore belongs to them, it doesn't belong to you. They're very, very generous and they let us keep most of our things. Under the terms of our permit, we have to report anything of historic interest over 300 years old to the Portable Antiquities Scheme, which is this amazing project run by the British uh, Museum that is currently recording all the objects that are found in fields and, and beaches and rivers. And so many people are metal detecting now, you know, it's it's gone bananas. So they're trying to record what's being found. So there's a record of it. And so you have to record anything of importance. If you find anything that qualifies as treasure, um, gold or silver, over 300 years old, that's very simply put, then you legally have to report it, and it goes through the coroner and that whole process. Um, so yes, apart from that, you have a moral responsibility to report what you're finding. Um, like I say, it doesn't belong to you. It's private property. It belongs to someone else. And it's it's a shared history. It needs to be recorded, and it needs to be reported. So just to pick things up, stick them in your back pocket and put them on eBay, it's so wrong. It's such so the wrong thing as soon as it goes on ebay it's lost its provenance it could come from anywhere it's meaningless it's a meaningless object so yes you have you have a legal responsibility and you have a moral responsibility to report what's found
0: it's fascinating i've always been struck by the extent to which you know morals and ethics are are so deeply personal and private and they're the kind of things that that we do when no one's looking so the fact that there is um almost an ethic an unwritten ethical code that goes with this is is fascinating you mentioned that you're a very solitary person, you love your own company. Um, are mudlarks naturally drawn to each other um, if you come across another mudlark on a particular stretch of the river? Do you, do you interact or do you stay a respectful, um, competitive distance away?
1: Uh, I suppose there is a sort of unwritten code that you, um, you give each other space. Uh, you, you, know, you say hello and you're polite, but you give each other space because you have this limited window you only have a few hours on the tide to search. So you don't want to waste time talking to people. Uh, you're there to search. And, um, you know, you'll have a sort of quick chat with people and you'll see people you know and wave to them. But uh, in general, you, you you tend to, people tend to keep themselves to themselves. And people go down to, most people go down to the river for peace and solitude. They're not down there to, so it's not really to, it's somewhere you go to meet up with people to chat because you're there for another reason. And so if you see someone mudlarking, you don't go and stand next to them and mudlark on their spot either. That's just an absolute no-no. You give them space and give them distance and, you know, leave them to their patch that they're looking at.
0: So there isn't, there isn't the, um, the Las Vegas lurker equivalent of, you know, somebody following you around the slot machines waiting to pounce on the jackpot at any moment.
1: <laughs> you do get people watching people, people watching where you are. And I, I've been looking and you see people sc- scooting in after you to have a look and see what you've been looking at. What she missed? <laughs> What's she looking at?
0: One of the things I was also conscious of is that you're actually giving away a lot of information about mudlarking and about sites and, you know, where you found certain things. As I understand it, that hasn't been altogether entirely popular with, um, certain parts of the, of the mudlark community who have, you know, a perfect right to their uh, opinion. But for for some people, this is a deeply unpopular and unsatisfactory book. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, it has been criticized by a very, small handful of mudlarks that um, have been used to having the foreshore to themselves. As I say, it's a a shared history. I think most of the people who read my book, a majority of the people who read my book will never go down onto the foreshore. They either live too far away, they're physically unable to go down, or they don't want to get muddy. So they're quite happy mudlarking vicariously. For other people, yes, it has opened it up. But the development of bank sides opened it up because when I first started, there was nobody over there. So now you get it's out, not at the moment, but it's on, on an average summer's day. It's absolutely rammed there and they'll see people down on the foreshore and go down and see what they're doing and join in. So I was seeing that happen more and more, and I thought, well, if people are going to start muddarking, then let's give them the information so that they can do it responsibly, and so that they know what they're doing, and so that they know that they should be reporting these objects, and they shouldn't be digging and scraping in this area or muddarking in that area. And I've made all of that very, very clear in the book. All the um, you know the regulations. The people who uh, disagree with my book, as I say, are the people who have been have had the foreshore as their pretty much private playground for a long time and they they are not happy about other people um enjoying it now
0: and and that's not i just take a step back that's not a uniquely mudlarking phenomenon isn't it i mean we we have discussed things like magic you know there can be a very similar set of reactions if you try and explain how a magic trick works certain parts of the you know the magic circle will not want that so i think maybe that's a natural human reaction when you have something that's relatively private that not many people necessarily know about you don't necessarily want it becoming a mainstream activity because it perhaps then loses something for you as a as an individual so i think it's interesting to reflect on the reaction in two ways one i can understand where they're coming from but but two it's such an inoffensive activity that to provoke a reaction like that would seem to be out of kilter with what it is you're actually trying to do you're 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 simply trying to see what the river has produced for you to look at and sometimes you can take that and do something with it sometimes you you put it back you're not damaging the river you're not damaging the past you're being respectful you're you're being safe so for it to produce a reaction like that does seem to be quite odd
1: it does i mean um I don't. I'm not a metal detectorist, um, but I I know metal detectorists, and I think there's very much if you've seen the if you've seen the television series the detectorists, it is like that. I think that sort of the chance of finding treasure, the chance of finding this amazing object, uh, also brings something else out in people. So they feel that they are their toes are being trodden on, or or that they um somehow their chances are being limited of finding these objects it's almost like a sort of I call it the the Gollum syndrome you know they they want to be the ones to find it they don't want loads of other people down there finding but you know most people who go down who read my book they'll go down once or twice and they really won't find much because it takes years of practice to start finding the good stuff Um, but they'll have a great day out and they'll learn a bit about London history and they'll get to hands-on touch these things and if they don't if you don't pick these things up off the foreshore that very often they're gone on the next tide so you know they're picking up things that would otherwise wash away yes i don't know human pe- people are funny aren't they human beings they um you know all of these people who are, have criticized my book started mudlarking themselves once didn't they you know how did they find out about it you know how did they get the knowledge that they've got they it's a bit like being impatient with a learner driver everybody was there once you know let people enjoy it Let people enjoy it. It's harmless.
0: (laughs) Chapter 3. Ordinary People Unlike the flowing water of the Thames, time and space sits still on the river. When you visit its shores, you never know what you're going to find or what century it will be from. But you can be certain that the history the river tells us is a truthful one, unfiltered and real. Laura began her foray into mudlarking as a form of escapism, but through the items she's seen and collected, she's become entangled in so many people's stories across the ages.
1: I used the river predominantly to get away from everyday life, to get away from my boring job and, uh, you know, my failing relationships, and later on to get away from the screaming kids and you know deadlines and it was my it was my go-to place just to get away from all of that and I began a Facebook page in 2012 just to share I really wanted to share what I was finding because I didn't see the point in picking these things up and putting them in a drawer and forgetting about them I wanted other people to see them and to share in this magical place and I didn't expect it to become as popular as it did Um, and I did it for four years completely anonymously I invented this name, London Mudlark, and I never posted a picture of myself. Nobody knew who I was unless they knew me. Um, and so I was completely anonymous until I was contacted by an agent who asked if I was interested in writing a book. Now, I work in publishing and I know far too much about writing books and what the, the blood, sweat and tears that goes into them. And I'm not a I was never a, a frustrated author. I was happy editing other people's work. And um, I had to think very hard about whether I wanted to do that because it meant coming out. It meant sort of people finding out who I was. And I, in the end, I agreed. I thought, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll write a book. I'll, you know, I'll give it a go. I wrote you know, a, a proposal and it was sent off to various publishers. And um, it was quite popular. And so it meant I had to tell people who I was. And that was really hard, actually, because I enjoyed being anonymous. I really enjoyed the an- anonymity of it, and I was the only person at the time posting mudlarking stuff online. You know, now there's hundreds of people doing it, but I was the only person, and it was it was just really nice doing it. Um, and it's ch- it has changed all of that. I think I preferred how it was before when it was just just me posting anonymously. It's got quite competitive now. I think people. People are out there trying to find something to put on the internet now, which it never—it was never like that. So, um, in that respect, it's changed. But uh, no, I could—I could never have foreseen the way it's—you know—I thought I'd write a book and a few people might read it. So I never thought it would be as popular as it, it has been.
0: And that is credit to you know to you, firstly, but also I think what you've tapped into is our innate desire to either find treasure or to reconnect with the past or to just feel as if we are part of something that we weren't half an hour before. And as you say, you know, if you'd have come back half an hour later, that object may have gone forever, you know, and, and never been found. So I think there's something in us all. And for you know, the writers who listen, I, I think they're going to get a huge amount from, from this because it's the connection of history and geography and, and, and weather and, and the past that just tells its own story. It's, It's as if these are objects that belong to characters we may never know anything about and there's something deeply personal with that so i think if you've tapped into anything other than you know general interest in the subject matter it's for some reason we are innately curious as human beings and we want to find things that we can have some form of connection with even if it may be you know just as you said an old a bent penny or a, you know, a George III shilling or something like that, that is part of our past, isn't it?
1: It is. I think really, I think the book has, we're living through strange times and I think we have been for several years and I think the book has possibly come along at just the right time when people are feel, maybe feeling a bit insecure. And I always, the, the past and history gives me great comfort because people have been there, but everyone's done this before. This is not, nothing new. People have lived through worse. And looking back on the past gives me a great sense of hope and comfort. And I don't know whether other people feel that too, or, or whether this, this book is just a very simple, it's very simple. It's go out and look around you. There's so much to see. You know, it's not just the pieces of the past. It's the nature and it's the weather and it's the tides. And it's just take time out from this crazy mad world that really is spinning out of control at the moment, just to be, just to exist in what, what's here now. And maybe look back into the past for some kind of a reference, something that might help tie you down.
0: It was a Christmas present um, that my sister-in-law gave to me, and I'm sure she won't mind me saying, but she—I've never seen her more excited at giving me anything um, ever. You know, she said, I, "I think you're going to love this book," and I and I did, and I, and I knew exactly what she meant when I read it, and not just because of where I live, but just because of what it says about the world, and and. On, on what we're living through, and what we have lived through, mm-hmm. and the fact that I mean, I'm a massive history fan, with um, my undergraduate degree, and the first time I got hooked on history was when um, a history teacher way back when said to me, "The thing about history, Mark, is that the further backwards you look, the further forwards you can see." And as like a kid, that blew my mind. I was like, "Oh wow," you know, and I, and I get that I get that sense that that you share that because when you are looking at an object. That could be centuries old. Um, it could even be, you know, two years old. It doesn't matter. But it's connecting you with something that has gone forever um, and now only exists in the form of an object. Is that does that resonate with you?
1: Absolutely. I mean, the objects I find are uh, belong to long forgotten Londoners, the people who made London, the real Londoners. You know, not all these mainly men who ended up in on statues and in books, you know, that these are just ordinary people and ordinary loved possessions that they had, they might have scratched their initials into, uh, maybe it got broken, and they threw it away. And so long as you know what that object is, you can make up anything about it. Nobody knows how it got there. Nobody knows who it once belonged to. You can make up anything, and every object has a hundred stories or, or more to tell. You know, uh, you'll never know exactly how that bodkin got bent, who the SE, the person who wrote her initials on it, was. And it just conjures up all these incredible visions of the past. And it is, like I say, the, the foreshore is the closest thing to a time machine. It is like reaching back physically with your hand through. The past and touching history, and I—it's I, magical. Um, I hated history at school. I really hated it because it, for me it was all dates and battles and kings and queens. I wasn't remotely interested in them. Um, I grew to love history later in life, just through living. I lived in a very old farmhouse, and just touching the walls, you could feel the—you could feel the history, and you could feel all the lives that have been lived. And to me, that's history. You know, not the history that's been written in the history books.
0: It's a very powerful. You get a very powerful sense of our senses through the book, particularly, um, I love the touch of certain objects, but sometimes there's a smell, isn't there, about something that you go, wow, I'm smelling the past here. And as you make your way down through, you know, cobble streets and and narrow alleyways onto those, you know, half rotten or fully rotten sets of wooden stairs that take you down. You you can smell it, and I I've not been there, but I from reading the book I could smell that same scent. So when you walk through it, your senses are all heightened, aren't they? As you, as you come closer to the past,
1: you are yes. I mean I mean the past does have a smell, doesn't it? You know if 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 you ask someone to describe the smell of the past, it would be that kind of it would be the smell of the river. It would be that kind of algae and and the wet wood and the sort of rotting bits of leaves and, and, and the river is incredible because it smells, every time I go, it smells different. Depends what's gone into it for a start. Depends on the weather, you know, it smells according to what's, it, it's just a living creature and it has smells and the smells are so important, they're so evocative. Then the most recent smell I have discovered is if you, if you find the clay pipes and you, when you clean them out and I discovered this years and years ago when you clean them out, you find the bits of um, old tobacco at the bottom very often. Wow. And, um, if you can collect together enough, you can actually burn it, and you can smell three hundred year old tobacco and That's amazing to think that that was so you can do all these weird weird wonderful I spent hours doing really stupid things like that, but all these weird, wonderful experiments and things, and yeah, you know, finding a bottle and it's still got something inside, and you're thinking, oh, what is that you know is it dangerous what what could it be? What was it you know, and there's this sort of little bit of white sludge in the bottom.
0: Well, on on that, very recently during lockdown, um, my wife was clearing out boxes that you know the sort of boxes that you, you, you only ever get to in lockdown. Yes. she opened a bunch of them and inside were two beautiful pewter hip flasks for female and it was clear, she said, Oh, I, I remember this, this belonged to my my mum's mum and I said, Oh, you know, open it and she opened it, she said, Oh, there's there's liquid in it and it was perhaps the most blissful afternoon of sipping this decades old nectar of you know scotch or whatever it was that was in and it was so interesting because we sat and we talked about her we talked yeah. about where she may have got this from and that connection i will never forget how good that thing tasted so maybe 300 year old tobacco would have been a great <laughs> accompaniment to that <laughs> Laura Makeland, thank you very much. The book is a triumph. Many congratulations and thanks for being such a great guest.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Conclusion. A massive thank you then to Laura Makeland for joining me on the podcast. And to recap, what have we learnt? Objects are storytellers. Think about how they can sit as characters in their own right and how you can elevate their status in your story. Because the truth is, humans often love things and stuff just as much as we love other people, if not more. From engraved wedding rings to an urn containing human ashes, some of the items Lara has found have deeply personal and perhaps dark pasts. When she throws them back, imagine if your character would try to uncover that object's history as the plot takes them on a dark and twisted journey of discovery. And finally, in life you'll always have people who disagree with what you've done, and it may make you question whether you are correct to write what you did. But stick to your guns, the vocal minority is just that, a minority, and it shouldn't dissuade you from writing what you feel needs to be heard. Thanks for listening, I'm Mark Haywood, and if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes are released weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Up next week, we'll be in conversation with the lovely Debbie McGee.
1: Magic is so complex. And so what the assistant is doing or where she's looking is so important.
0: Goodbye for now. Stay
1: safe and keep writing.